Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, June the 19th, 2012. This is episode 925. It is a Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday in the Friday Voice. Why? Because we're doing the show that's usually a Friday show, and there'll still be one this Friday. But we skipped it. Uh, this Friday because uh, Jeff Lawton wanted to come be on the show and I was going out of town and it just worked out that way and if Jeff Lawton wants on the show I will give him whatever space is available anytime he wants to come on and I think it was worth doing and then yesterday we were supposed to do this show and of course what happened is there was a giant wreck and I got in the office really late and this show takes a lot more time I take at least two and a half times longer to do this show than I do any other show that I do with prep work and getting the calls ready and filtering noise out and screening them and all that stuff. So yesterday I wanted you to have a show before like 2 p.m. So I, uh, I modified the schedule. So today we'll do my favorite shows. And even though these take longer, the reason I do them is because I love them. Because it's you guys being part of the show. So if you want to be on a show like this, it's really easy to do. I'd say for every call you make, you have about a 30% to 40% chance of getting on the air if you follow the rules. And sometimes even when you don't follow the rules, you'll hear from a guy today that called from a quiet car with a good connection, so he got on the rules. The basic rules are, this is not, you don't have to do this. This is to improve your odds of getting on. Find a quiet area. Uh, if you're on a cell phone, just get somewhere where you're not moving around so there's not breaks in, in your call from being broken up. Because it's not like talking to somebody on the phone where they can go, hey, you're breaking up. You don't know you've broken up. And the big thing is a quiet area. If you call me while somebody's running a weed whacker in the background or while you're driving is one thing. Driving with the window down is another. Do those things and odds are you'll get on the show. If you've called in more than three weeks ago, you haven't heard your call yet. It doesn't mean you did anything wrong. It just means that you know there's a certain volume and only so many get on. Consider calling back in, and that's really a good rule of thumb. After about three weeks, if your call hasn't been on the air and you really want an answer to it, call back in, and uh, we'll try to get you on the air. I try to be really fair with this, but there's a volume issue. But I'll tell you what, this is so much more likely for you to get on the air than the email shows. I get 2 to 3% of the calls that I get emails. So it's a great venue and an opportunity for you to be heard. Before we get to your calls, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one today, BulkAmmo.com. I say it all the time. I'll say it again because it's the most accurate statement I can make as to why you need ammo. Gun, no ammo, equals expensive club. I mean, that's, that's all you've got. So you might as well just go out and buy some baseball bats if you're not going to keep enough ammo to keep your weapons running at all times and to be able to train with them and to be effective. Now, if you're going to use your, your weapons for training, you're going to want lots of ammo. So you're going to want ammo in bulk. And where are you going to get bulk ammo? From bulkammo.com. Specifically when you're doing the 9mm, the 40 Smith, the 5.56, the, you know, the, that stuff, the, the common calibers that everybody has and everybody uses, the deals they have, are absolutely phenomenal. The AK ammo, the AR ammo, all that stuff. Check them out today, bulkammo.com. Next up today, MERS Radio. MERS Radio is great because they have secondary communications and security in a single system. The security comes from motion detectors, where if someone's out on your property moving around or something's out on your property moving around over your handhelds and your base station, you'll hear something like Alert Sector 1 or Alert Sector 2 or Alert Sector 3 or 4. 
It doesn't take a genius to figure out that if something's going on out in your, your sectors that you have monitored with your motion detectors and you take a radio with you and you have an earpiece in and you have somebody back in your house that's also monitoring the radio, the two of you can communicate with each other and every time somebody moves around, you know the area that they're in. Now, if you add wireless cameras to that, you've really got something. Check them out today, MERS-radio.com, so M-U-R-S. Dash radio.com. Best way to make sure you're actually dealing with our sponsor there, Rob, uh, or Bulk Ammo, or any of these guys, go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on their banners in the right-hand margin. All right, uh, next up, I want to let you guys know something really, really cool is about to happen. You're about to get an opportunity to meet me, if you want to, in Arlington, Texas. Yes, Arlington, uh, where the Spirgo clan is actually from. That will be July 27 and 28 at the Arlington Convention Center. On July 27, I will be part of a, uh, a multi-member panel of experts on self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and survivalism. And on the 28th, I will be giving a keynote speech uh, for the event as a standalone speech. So uh, you can find out more information about that at selfrelianceexpo.com. I'll include a link in today's show notes. I don't know my time slots yet, so don't ask. I'll tell you when I know. Uh, we're working out those details now, but I will be there, again, at the Arlington Convention Center in Arlington, Texas, and the dates are July 27 and 28. If you're in the area, I'd love to meet you. Come on by. Next up, remember, you can get some really cool copper rounds at tspcopper.com. Again, the, the site is tspcopper.com. They are all AOCS-approved barter currency with great statements and political things that you can share with people or just cool things like the Survival Podcast rounds so you can share the show with people or Ron or Rand Paul, if that's your bent, or the Second Amendment. And I'm working with Rob right now. We're going to put together kind of a collector's set of, uh, like, say, five of the most popular roles in a set with a discount. So that will be coming soon. MSB members, of course, you get a discount on all your copper at tspcopper.com. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You get a bunch of great stuff. It's a good deal. You support the show at about 20 cents an episode. With that, I've got everything wrapped up. Let's take your first call. Remember, if you want to be on this show, the way you get there is you pick your phone up. You do all the things I said earlier, and then you mash some numbers. The numbers you mash. 866-65-THINK. That's 866-65-THINK. And with that, let's go ahead and take the first call. Hey, Jack. My name is John. calling from Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, my wife and I are, are considering the uh, paleo way of life and wanted to know um, if you had any thoughts on, uh, you know, raising children on a paleo uh, type of diet. Um, so I'm, I'm just uh, waiting on some books from the library. thought I'd pick your brain and uh, see what you had to say. Thanks. Bye. Uh, I, I just say do it. I mean, I don't even – see, this is one of the things, and I'm not picking on the collar, like this, but this is one of the things that I, I realize with so many parents when it comes to, okay, we're going to change our eating habits because we know this is a healthier way of life and we know that we want to live this way. Oh, but our kids have to have Twinkies because they're kids. See <laughs> – and I want you to think about it this way. If you go into any of the few hunter-gatherer societies that are still left, and there are some of them out there, and you look at what their children eat, well, they eat the same things that the adults do. But there's certain things that we'll learn if we go into these societies. We'll learn, for instance, that a lot of the organ meats and the choicer cuts of meat are given to the children and the elders. Now, why do they do that? Well, because... Unlike, you know, grain-fed cattle or even really, really well-grazed grass-fed cattle, there's not a lot of marbled fat in wild animals. They don't have a lot of fat, and they store most of their fat 
uh, in things like the organ meats, and some of the choicer cuts have some meat, and they'll also often have strips of fat that run through their midsection that, that people will remove, or tallow that's taken out. And a lot of times those things are given to the elderly and the children because the elderly have greater nutritional needs because they've lost the ability over time to absorb as much, and children are in a developmental state. So I actually believe, and understand, I can't give you medical advice. This is not medical advice. This is my opinion. And my opinion is that children will develop much better on a diet that's very, very paleo-like. Um, and I base that on the fact that if you go into a hunter-gatherer society and you look at what a 14-year-old kid is physically capable of, uh, they will put our 14-year-old kids that grow up with school lunches to shame. Uh, and you won't find any of them that are fat, and you won't find any of them that have type 2 diabetes. So my opinion is just do it. Now, parents a lot of times will say things like, well, my kids won't eat. Let me tell you what your kids will do. Your kids won't eat until they realize they're not getting anything else. And then when they get hungry, they'll eat. And as I said this on my parenting episode, if your child doesn't eat dinner tonight and chooses to go to bed hungry, they will not die before tomorrow morning. They won't die. They're not going to die. And when they get up in the morning and you say, and they say, well, it's for breakfast, I want donuts, and you go, bacon and eggs. If they don't eat breakfast that morning, they won't die. Okay? And eventually, you will win if you just hold the course. Odds are you won't even have to do the battling if you're smart about it. You kind of wean people off and get them over. What I've found is that I don't really see many kids crying because they were given a piece of sirloin steak uh, with, with some vegetables and things like that, if that's what happens every every day. So... All I would tell you is the big thing that any nutritionist would tell you, even somebody that says I'm completely wrong about paleo, is you got to get them off the junk food. And kids are much more resilient than adults, and they can deal with a lot more crap in their diet than we can. But the level of crap between the fructose corn syrup and the sodas, the fructose corn syrup and the freaking milk at school, and, I mean, these these schools that say, we don't want the kids drinking soda, and they, they say they don't want the kids having a 12-ounce can of Coke, and then they give them uh, you know an 8-ounce thing of milk that has more sugar than the 12 ounces uh, of Coca-Cola. It's just insane on its face. The challenge you'll have with raising children on any diet that you're trying to control is going to be that they'll leave the house, and when they leave the house, they're going to make some of their own decisions. And here's what you can do. Relax. You know, relax your balloon knot, as I tell my dog once in a while. Just relax. Uh, you know, because they're going to go do stuff like that. And kids should occasionally eat candy. Kids should occasionally eat junk food. It's okay. And they can get away with it a lot more than, than we can. But you control the primary diet. And I think the biggest thing that anybody needs to take away from any time you're trying to change the dietary habits of your children is you are in control. And if they choose not to eat today, they won't die. I mean, I can't say that too many times. They won't die. They won't die. They won't die. They won't die. Your kid can go a day without food. Someday he might have to, or she might have to. So if they choose to do it because they're being obstinate, call it good training, okay? No one has ever not eaten for a day and then fallen over dead, unless the person has, like, diabetes or something like that. And if you're dealing with that situation, you should already be in a very low-sugar environment. Um, where you'll have the biggest problems are kids that have been able to eat whatever they want and are in those years where they really develop their own identity. So about eight years old and up. That's where you're really going to have a hard time changing the dietary habits. 
from there down, they're a lot easier to deal with because they still see your authority is absolutely supreme. Some kids, you know, by five, they start to really leave that. Some it's closer to eight and somewhere in there. But when they, you know, most kids when they're eight or nine years old, they really, you know, it's not the two year old that really learns no, it's the eight year old that learns no and how to implement it. So the two year old just goes, no! You drag them out of the store or whatever, and they don't get it. Eventually, they, they cave. But the eight-year-old is smart enough to go, no only means no while I say so, and I can figure out ways around this. And So the, the biggest thing that you can do right, in any situation where you want to put your child on a healthier food is understand that when they leave the door, they're going to have to make some decisions for themselves, and you can give them guidance. And like anything else in life, sometimes they're going to do what you prefer they didn't do. And they're not going to die from that either. So if they eat a Twinkie tomorrow, they also will not fall over and die. But you can educate them. Start explaining to them why you're doing this. Show them what's in their food. Show them what corn syrup looks like. Show them what's being done to the corn before it's turned into syrup and they eat it. They, and it might not happen. Like You're going to think, oh, I'm going to show them this. They'll be like, yeah, I'm not going to eat that. And they might go, I don't care. But you've planted the seed. But then the, the big thing, and this is the most important thing, get it all out of the house. Gut the house of all the garbage. If you're going to put them on a vegetarian lifestyle, you do the same thing, right? So parents that make a decision to, go, to live a healthier life and then say, well, their kids are somehow supposed to live different, it's like saying, well, I'm not going to eat rat poison, but my kids need it. I mean, that's how I view it. So th that's kind of my thoughts on that. But don't believe anybody that tells you that it's going to be somehow bad for a child to live on a paleo diet. I think that's complete utter nonsensical bullshit and it's the same thing they tell adults you know we're not supposed to live on it and all I can say all I can say is at this point uh, you know I lost this huge amount of weight and that the, the weight loss has really slowed because I just don't have that much more to go but the total weight loss that I've experienced now is around 90 pounds 90 pounds is a small person that I've lost. I am healthier than I've ever been before. I have more energy than I've ever had in my life. I work my butt off in my yard all day long, and I don't even have anything really to do. I go out there and make work for myself because I feel like doing something. Uh, it's only the heat that makes me go, man, do I really want to do this? You know, I wake up in the morning. I don't feel lethargic. I don't get shaky. I had hypoglycemia for a big part of my life, kind of the opposite of diabetes. It often leads to type 2 diabetes. I, I, I had headaches. I had backaches. I had all kinds of, 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 of things that were holding me back. And all I did was stop eating sugar and starch. I mean, if you really want to take it down to that. So I'm a big fan, and I'm a big fan because of the results that I've experienced. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Mo, Free Mo from the forum. Uh, I've got a question for you, and I'd like your opinion on a couple things. question is, when I joined the MSB, I downloaded all the zip files for the past podcast, and I tried moving them to my iPod or iTunes and they never go over. I'm not quite sure how to do that, so if you give me some input on that, that'd be great. Um, your opinion on two things. I'm currently living in Maine. I was born and raised in Levittown, Pennsylvania in September of 72, so I'm not too far off from you, brother. Um, I'm looking at possibly relocating to Tacoma, Washington. Much like Maine, only it's got more of a uh, diverse culture, more opportunities out there, essentially, is my, what I'm looking at. Um, however, with the Fukushima thing, I watched a program on Coast to Coast talking about how the radiation coming over is affecting the West Coast, so it's got me a little sketchy on that. 
Um, and I'm looking for a career change. I'd like to go to welding school. I figured it'd be great for the future, regardless of whether it hits the fan or it's not. Great skill to have. Um, what's your thoughts on those? Thanks for everything you do, brother. Have a great one. Thoughts are you're freaking cheating, so I'm going to have to go fast in your freaking answers because you've got so many uh, questions for me. Let's go in order uh, on them. Uh, number one, the zip files in the MSB. I have a, a sneaking suspicion that somehow, for some reason, your iTunes has seen those files as music files versus podcast files. And if you have done the import of files to your library, add files to the library, and you're not finding them as a podcast, go into your music category and take a look in there, and you might find them all in there. And what you can do is update the settings to change their their, their file type to podcast. Uh, and you should be able to do that in mass, like you know, hit uh, uh, shift and then select all the files and, and, and right click and change all of them in mass to, and not just the genre, the actual file uh, classification of podcasts, and that should work for you. Um, I also would say on the Fukushima thing, this is this is my view of Fukushima. Fukushima is a problem. It's a real problem for people in Japan and near Japan. It is a non freaking event for people in the United States on any meaningful or tangible level. I know lots of you are listening to Alex Jones and it's the big cloud of death coming to get you and buy the potassium iodide and his longevity crap or whatever. I know a lot of you are listening to Coast to Coast. I know a lot of you are reading alternative media. Let me tell you what Fukushima is for these people. It is the biggest payday ever for them because they can all start talking about something. It's physically not going to be an issue for you here in the United States no matter what goes on over there it's not the distance creates enough you know enough of a of a factor in reducing the hazard that it's i mean again i just go back to this in the 1950s and 60s the United States government detonated quite a few atomic bombs on our desert soil, on the surface. Eventually they went subterranean because they realized they were causing problems. But it wasn't like billions of people died or anything like that. It just, it's just not something I would change my life for. Now, if you said to me, Jack, I'm considering moving to Tokyo and I'm concerned, I would say, do not go there right now. This, this is a bigger problem. This is, this is the typical way that something like this happens. The alternative whack job media that's on the complete fringe says, oh, it's the end of days. And then the mainstream media says, nothing to see here, don't worry about it. And the truth inevitably lies somewhere in the middle. Recently, tuna were found off the coast of California with some radiation exposure to them uh, that clearly came from Fukushima. The, the other side of that equation, though, was that the radiation levels in the tuna were so low that they were lower than the background radiation. The only reason they know they were from Fukushima is a specific type of isotope uh, that was found in the tuna that only would have come from the Fukushima event. So is there radiation? Yes, there's radiation everywhere. And there's the, the U.S. radiation map that measures radiation exposure throughout the country. And do you know what it's pretty much done since the day Fukushima started? Absolutely frick all nothing that it hasn't done on a daily basis. So, am I saying to just close your eyes and ears and not worry about Fukushima at all? No. But I am saying don't base your life decisions on the mainland United States right now based on Fukushima. Just don't do it. It's just, 
It really, and, and okay, and the people that go, oh, California, it's going to happen and die, and whatever, okay. Well, if, if, if you have that much of a danger in, in the west coast of the United States from Fukushima, then we're screwed on the east coast, aren't we? Because there's a hell of a lot less distance from Japan to California than from California to Philadelphia. Get a globe and take a look at it. Get an understanding of the distances that are involved here. Again, I'm not for those that are going to freak out. I'm not saying it's nothing to worry about. I'm saying don't base your day-to-day decisions in the United States on it. Because it's a much bigger problem for the people over there. And I believe that they will eventually contain the problem. And I believe that the problem in a localized area, right, northern Japan and all that, is going to be way worse than anybody over there is willing to admit right now. And I believe a lot of people are going to be sick, and a lot of people are going to die in the localized area, far more than they'll ever admit. And there'll be people dying in the future and cancers in the future that will clearly be linked to it, and they'll deny it. But it's not sufficient to get here and harm you. Stop listening to these people. Um, the next one on welding is a trade. Great trade. Great one to learn. Uh, it opens up so many different things that you can do uh, from a standpoint of things you can do for yourself, uh, from a standpoint of employment, and many different jobs that somebody would have that generally don't necessarily require welding when you're in any kind of a shop environment where welding is necessary. Having the additional skill is likely to get you the job. So if it's something you're truly interested in, And it's something you really want to learn. It's something you're excited about. It's something you can go learn in school for a reasonable fee for without going into super debt for or something stupid. You know, don't spend $30,000 for a welding degree or whatever the hell, you know, and, and, and borrow from Fannie Mae to do it. Uh, and then have a student loan around so long you think it's a freaking pet. Uh, but if you can go for a reasonable price and you can fund your education, I think it's a great skill to have. So go for it. I got them all in five and a half minutes. Let's take the next one. Hey, Jack. This is Kurt from Colorado. My question is about how to grow food at elevation. We live in the front range, tied here because of work. We're at 8,600 feet. Our snow melts in May, and our first snow comes by mid-September. It's cool up there year-round, and our soil is crushed granite. So growing food up there is a real challenge. Do you have any advice for someone in our situation? Thanks, Jack, and I look forward to hearing from you. I mean, the first advice I would give you is to look at the work that Sepp Holzer's done, but you're in an even more extreme environment than he is. He is growing stuff at about 1,500 feet elevation and growing an incredible variety of things, including this guy has between 1,100 and 1,500 feet of elevation growing things like lemons in the Austrian Alps. Now, that's, uh, that's pretty impressive, but you're looking at 1,500 meters at about 4,900 feet. So you're, you're significantly higher in elevation than that with probably an even shorter growing period. But I think you could still maybe adapt some of the things that he's doing. The granite soil doesn't really bother me because anything you can do to start building fertility up with that is going to be a huge mineral content that's available in your soil, so that would work. I would say that when it comes to growing things outside, outdoors, You need to look at short season, uh, things that do great in, in cool climate. So you want to look at growing the stuff there. And you have these huge long day periods, though, and that's a huge advantage. So cabbages, broccolis, uh, Brussels sprouts, lettuces, spinaches, all the stuff that we grow in the winter in, in, the, in the southern part of the country uh, is the stuff that you need to be growing in your summer. 
And that's probably going to be the main things that you're capable of growing outdoors. And you're going to have to, you know, put in some type of raised beds, maybe do some hugel culture, uh, or just straight up raised beds or things like that. The nice thing is you have low evaporation, uh, you have low heat, so you're going to have very low watering requirements, and you probably have tons of water available as well. So that would be the outdoor stuff. And uh, I'm not an Arctic growing expert, and you're going. Even with what I do know, you're going beyond what I have any level of real experience with as far as elevation. At 8,000 feet, uh, you're, you're above where I've ever had to work with anything or I've ever directly worked with somebody who's done it. But what I can tell you is the answer is a big greenhouse. And in a big greenhouse, you can probably grow a lot of the summer vegetables in summer, and you can probably extend a tremendous amount of your winter growing into the greenhouse through even your long winter. Now, if you get into those points where you start to have a really, really short days, you may have some problems with that. You may have to bring in some supplemental heat. But I would say where you're at, if you want to grow any serious amount of food, uh, that you're looking at a greenhouse as a absolute requirement. You do not have to have a greenhouse in, in many places. They're just not, they're, they're helpful. They're useful. They have tremendous flexibility. They can do a lot for you, but you don't have to have one. Where you're at, if you want to grow anything on a meaningful level, you, you kind of do. But I would focus on growing fresh, fast-growing stuff that needs some level of intensive management because that way you get the biggest bang for your buck, so to speak, out of it. If you're going to want, like I said, pull anything off that's like a summer vegetable, tomatoes and things like that, grow your most winter-hardy stuff and get that stuff uh, in, in, in as early as possible. You know, indoors, a grow light out into the greenhouse as soon as it can survive out there. And you can probably get some decent production. In fact, you might be surprised with the long days how much production you can get in a, you know, a greenhouse is something like a 15 by 20 or something like that. Now, there are things that will grow uh, in your environment. And I don't know what they are, but I'll tell you how to find out what they are. What's growing there now? What's growing there now? And look at what's growing there now and look for productive plants that are of the same, uh, same variety or similar varieties. And you can probably get those there. I mean, some things that spring to mind would be some of the cultivars that have come out of Siberia, uh, that you will find in rain tree catalog, like hardy arctic kiwi and things like that. Uh, I believe Saskatoons, which are a berry that's similar to a blueberry, it's hardy to like zone three, but I think you're probably even out of that. So here's the, the fundamental reality. You can't do everything everywhere. And if you say to me, how do I grow food on a marginal desert area, I have a lot of answers. If you say, how do I grow food in the dead center of the Sahara in the sand seas, I have, I actually can come up with some ways to get some stuff to grow. But it's so dadgone intensive, it doesn't probably make sense. Okay, so there are certain environments that are just not conducive to things, but I do think Raised beds, short season, cool weather vegetables, outdoors in your 90 days of growing season. Uh, look at the work of Sepp Holzer. Learn about things like crater gardens and things like that. High wall gardens that reduce the wind effect and will bring your temperature much higher uh, by doing that. And definitely consider putting in a greenhouse. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Lauren from Indy. I know I'm breaking one of your rules. I'm calling the car, so it sounds like uh, junk. Uh, free to let it roll, let it get it out of there. But, hey, I just wanted to comment um, or provide some feedback on, I don't know if you said it on the 5 Minutes with Jack or this podcast, but something to the effect of uh, when you're going into an interview, know everything there is about the company, make your recommendations and so on and so forth to, to really solidify your position as being the best candidate to be hired. 
Well, I was went to two interviews over the last two weeks with the same company and took that very approach. Um, looked through their website, made I'm basically a web designer, web marketer, and and made my recommendations directly even in front of the CEO and the marketing director. Um, and they were taking notes. I was sharing. I didn't care that they were taking that information because it's it's about taking action and not just having the idea. So, um, you know that I. Uh, Basically, I got offered the job. I put in my two weeks notice last Monday. So thanks for all the advice. Thanks for everything you're doing on uh, both shows. And uh, rock on, buddy. See ya. See, that's awesome. And it's what I call the aggressive approach. Um, it can backfire. I, I, when I first heard this call, and I was like, you know, I hope you got the job because there are places where maybe that's not what you want to do. And let me explain that. Let's say you just need a job. You need any freaking job you can get. You'll take a $10 an hour job as a telemarketer. And they just want somebody to sit down, read the script, and do what they're told, and you're willing to do that until you find something better. You even think there might be advancement opportunities in that job. When they're hiring a person at that level, if you start talking about changing anything, they're probably not going to be interested. The same with a janitor that's going to sweep the floor. So for low-level positions where it's not going to be expected that you're going to immediately make an impact on decision-making, this would probably be a detriment rather than an asset. In a position where you're expected to come in and make decisions, in any company you're really going to want to work for, it's exactly the thing that you need to do. When you come into it, like when I, I, I got one job where I was uh, basically the director of marketing for a large telecom company for a while, uh, actually director of Internet marketing. And when I walked in, I, I let them ask all their questions and everything like that, and then I said, okay, here's what I would do. And I went through a complete marketing plan with no notes from one end to the other, and I had three high-level executives sit there and just look at me with their mouth agape, understanding 50% of what I had said, And that was enough to make them understand that the rest of it was true and be completely blown away. And they interviewed 72 candidates for that job. The job required a master's in marketing or equivalent. As most of you know, I have never been to college, and I got the job. And the reason I got the job is that aggressive approach. It just doesn't apply everywhere. The more you're going to be expected in a company to be taking action and making decisions, the more of an action-oriented position it's going to be, the better it's going to be received. The other caveat, I've got to be careful sometimes when I give advice because sometimes people run away with it without thinking, is that the advice needs to be related to what you're doing. So if you come into a business and you are being interviewed for a job as a computer programmer and you start talking about the logo on the front of their building, that's probably not going to go over real well. So make sure that it's germane to what you'll be doing. But it's also on a standpoint sometimes it's not even about what to do. It's an awareness of the company. If you come in and the company has three major initiatives that they're currently working on, and you mention all three of them, even if you don't tell them what you think they should do with them, you just say, I understand that you're doing these things and, and whatever. And you know how when companies say, your interviewer always says, well, do you have any questions for me? No is never a good answer. And usually what they expect are questions like, you know, what's my, my health plan? What's my days off? What's the starting salary? You know, what's the culture like here? And that's actually the best out of all of those is what's the culture of the company like? They like that question. But you, if you say, hey, you know, I actually I was doing some research on your company before this, and I know that one of your strategic initiatives for 2012 is da-da-da-da-da-da. How's that going? Right? That's a great question because it doesn't pass any judgment from your side. 
but it shows an awareness and involvement. And you let them answer that question. You go, that's great. And if there's things you can help out, things, ideas you have, certainly bring them up along the way. But you can also say, and I was also noticing that you've set up a strategic relationship with Company X. How's that going? When, when you are that candidate, and every other candidate comes in and follows the textbook method of interviewing, you get the job. These, these are very, very simple, very, very basic things that nobody teaches anybody. And the reason that nobody teaches anybody this is because most people in the business of telling you how to get a job follow the conformity. Because conformity is safe. And if you do the conformity for long enough, sooner or later, somebody hires you, especially in good times. I don't know if you've checked around, though. These are, this is not a great time to be a conformist. This is not a great time for business as usual. This is not a great time for sending out 20 resumes a day and thinking that's going to get you a job. But this is an exceptional time to get a job when you can stand apart. The beauty of 80 people applying for a job is that odds are that at least 70 of them will be, nah, whatever, this exact same clones. That will leave you with 10 to really compete with. Of those 10, most of them don't know the very things I've just told you right now. So the more people that interview for a job, that's actually where I've always felt the most likely that I would be able to get the job if I wanted it. Because the more people they look at, the more I can contrast with the status quo, with the normal. And I think that's very, very important. And it's, it's how I've had three jobs in my life that required college degrees without a college degree. And it's why I don't have the huge opinion of college a lot of people do. Because I know that the requirement is extremely flexible. It's extremely flexible for a person who's proven. It's extremely flexible for a person that can sell around it. And it's extremely flexible in certain positions. If you want to go and, and, and do work as an engineer, you're probably going to need an engineering degree. So it's not that I don't see any value in, in, a, in a college degree uh, or that it's not necessary for some jobs because if I went and got to try to get a job working as an engineer for an aerospace company, nothing I could have said in the interview would have gotten around the fact that I don't have an engineering degree. I don't even have the first inkling of an education as an engineer. Um, but if you wanted to get, if I wanted a job working for an aerospace engineering company as a major accounts manager, serve, you know, serving the aerospace industry, they said we want somebody with a master's degree uh, in, in aerospace so that they can speak the language of our customers. I bet you could have got that job if I really wanted it. And, and, and this aggressive approach is what's necessary because when it comes down to it, companies care about the bottom line, and the bottom line is directly proportionate to the action of the key leaders in the company. That's a great statement to write down for your next interview, by the way. All right, so we're getting really varied in topics today. This is cool. Let's take another one and see where it goes from here. Hi, Jack. This is Rob from Pittsburgh, PA. I had a question for you regarding future careers in medicine and the future of the medical system in the U.S. in general. I'm, uh, I'm thinking about going into medical school at the age of 25 with family. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on the wisdom of that move. I'm a... Uh, I've been listening the past two and a half years, and I know your your outlook on the future of the economy and the educational systems bleak. But I wanted to know how that would tie into the plans of a of a person considering an education and a career at that level. Uh, there isn't any sense in my taking a student debt, taking on student debt like that if I'll never have the ability to pay it back. So, uh, bit of a dual question on uh, your predictions and how your predictions apply to young students and the future of the U.S. health system in general. Just thought you could help out with the decision. Thanks. 
funny how the calls dovetail one after the other without me doing anything other than going through them and picking them in the order they come. Uh, and that's what happened here again. You guys are just in sync with each other, thinking the same way, same concerns at the same time. But here's, here's my thought on that. Uh, number one, it, being a doctor, uh, being a doctor of any kind, whether it's an MD, uh, whether it's being an osteopath, whether it's being a, um, a dentist, a doctor of dental, dental science or uh, an eye doctor, any kind of doctor, that's a college thing. And that's exactly what you should do. And, and, and if that's what you want to do, then you should go for it. You should do the thing you most want to do. From a professional standpoint, though, let me tell you something that I know. I know quite a few doctors who are pretty much broke, uh, especially general practitioners. It's a dying uh, practice. Nobody wants to do it. A lot of it is being taken up by doctors that are coming into the country from other countries, which means it's got job security. If you're going to be a GP, you're going to have plenty of patience and plenty of opportunity, but you're not going to make a lot of money because the insurance industry has ruined it and the government has ruined it, and I think that the government and the insurance companies will continue to ruin it. If we switch over to a place where insurance is run much, much better where insurance is primarily you know, to help with costs rather than try to eliminate the cost. And, and, and doctors are forced to work with patients with payment schedules and things like that. We go into the field of dentistry. Now, I've met quite a few dentists lately. All of them are making lots and lots and lots, and I mean freaking lots of money. The dentists that are just doing general general family practitioner stuff with cleanings and kids and all that other stuff, they're doing good. The ones that are doing more cosmetic dentistry are doing good. The ones that are doing like implants and things for older people to start to lose teeth and all are doing good. They're all doing good. I don't know a poor dentist. I And if, if there is one, he's probably done some dumb things with his practice. So the financial opportunity... For someone that's a doctor of dentistry versus an MD right now, if that MD is going to go in a general practitioner route, I think are much better as a dentist. I, will that stay that way? I don't know, but right now that is the case. And and I I, I could you know I could interview a hundred MDs at random and a hundred dentists at random. I guarantee you the net worth of the dentist is going to be higher. Uh, likewise, there may be some other opportunities there. Uh, like I mentioned, being a, 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 an eye doctor uh, or even veterinary medicine, maybe some other things. And anybody that's a vet would be very useful in a, a crisis situation from a medical standpoint as well. It, it, from my understanding, this could be one of those myths that I've been misled by, but I really don't think it is, that there are more people that fail the veterinary medicine path than the human medicine path that it's actually more difficult to become a veterinarian because you don't have one species and your patient can't explain things to you. Uh, so you have to learn the anatomy of multiple species and the, the, the physiology of multiple species, and you have to deal with a patient that cannot tell you where the problem is. So that's my understanding. So there's a lot of science and medicine that would be very advantageous. So if you want to be an MD because you want to be a doctor, do it. It's a great thing to do. But I would look immediately at an aspect of specialization. The people that are making money right now as MDs are either, one, very smart business people that are part of a multi-physician practice and they're the head partner or they have two or three partners with them and they have sub, you know, the, the, a group of additional, and so they're running a big practice and they're running it like a big business. So they can do the volume necessary and they're, they're, they're operating far more as, as an owner than a practitioner. Those are, that's one group of MDs. The other are the specialists. 
the people that are the guys that get referred to by the GPs. They bill at a much higher rate. Whenever somebody walks through the door, the insurance has already been approved or they're not there. The other route would be, if you're going to be a general practitioner, is to go into business as a cash doctor. I, I think that there's a huge opportunity there. And just say, we don't do Medicaid, we don't do Medicare, we don't do insurance, we don't do any of that crap. An office is it is X, the blood test is Y. We take cash and check only, uh, maybe credit cards, but basically we take direct payment for the patient. And there are more and more guys doing that, and they're doing fairly well from my understanding because they get paid today versus 90 days from now. They get paid what they bill other than a fraction of what they bill. They don't have to fight anything, and the patients like the fact that they can come in there and just get health care. Now, if we get into a point where everybody has insurance, the, the, the promise of Obamacare, and sadly we might, that may really hurt the person doing the cash business. They may even pass a law, and, and Hillary Care, the old, old, old health care bill, had a provision in it that if I was a doctor, all right, and this is fact, if I was a doctor and you were on Hillary Care, because everybody was going to be on Hillary Care, and I charged cash and you weren't, you could not get me on your plan for whatever reason, but I was your doctor in the past and you liked me. And you said, screw it, I don't care if the healthcare system will pay for it, I'll go pay out of pocket, and I'll go to Dr. Jack, and Dr. Jack will take care of me, that you and I both could go to jail. There was a provision in Hillary Care that said that. Part of why it got killed. So if somebody's, what do we say about the lessons of history? We don't study history for the reason they tell us. They tell us in school. We study history because so, if you don't learn the mistakes of the past, then we're doomed to repeat them. No. We study history because whatever some dumbass did in the past, some dumbass will do in the future, and we need to be prepared to deal with when that dumbass does it. Well, if, if the government has made it, tried to make it a crime, to go outside of government-provided health care in the past, then the more government health care they get in place, the more they will make that a crime. So the problem for the general practitioner, in a the more insurance that we have, the bigger the bureaucracy, the larger the government involvement becomes, the more regulated to just a cog in the system the general practitioner becomes. So to me, it's either specialized or consider something like you know dental you know a doctor of dental surgery or something like that because it's outside of that system and you still get a lot of the skills that are necessary that would be advantageous if there was a full on collapse and and the training that would be very beneficial there. Those are my thoughts. But by all means, if your dream is to be a doctor, don't let my outlook at the economy. Take that away from you, but be really smart about how you fund this. Really, really smart about how you fund this. Because it's a very, very expensive thing to do. I'm also considering that at 25, with everything that I've said, you already have a degree. And you're now, you would now be applying to go to medical school, right? You're not starting out with no degree at 25. You're going to have to get a degree and then apply to med school. If you're in that situation right now, I think you need to take a really hard look at this from an economic standpoint. I'm not telling you not to do it, but I'm telling you the decision is a much bigger decision if that's the case. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. Paul here from the great state of Wisconsin. I uh, just kind of want your view on this idea that I'm going to do here. Um, the great state of Illinois is offering $100 for gun buybacks. I've got about 10, you know, real old-style handguns that really aren't safe to fire anymore. You know, they're just little parts guns, but it classifies for the buyback. You know, I've maybe got 200 bucks total in all these, but I can walk away with it for with a thousand bucks. But yet, on the other hand, I'm thinking maybe I'm kind of 
doing the right thing for me, but a wrong thing for the public, because they could use those numbers and say, look at how many guns we took off the street. Just wanted your idea on that. Thanks for the show. Bye. All right, so here's the deal. Let's let's look at this completely logically with no attachment whatsoever to the political connotations of going to a gun buyback and selling what frankly sound like completely useless piece paperweights and the government being dumb enough to give you $100 a piece for these paperweights. All right, so um, if we take it just at that, you're talking about an 80% return. When you can sell something for an 80% return, specifically something that has no use to you, you do it from a completely logical standpoint. So the the logical component in me, the, the the you know the Mr. Spock component to my brain says, go sell these fools your useless guns and get a grand out of it. Now the the integrity in me, right? The the the, the morality in me that believes that there is a war on against the Second Amendment says, I don't want anything to do with these people and I don't want to help them in any way. Doctor or Mr. Spock says. Logic, Jack, logic. And, and, and when I, when I hear that, I think, so if I sell them my 10 guns, and they, we say, we bought 190 guns versus 180 guns, is anybody that was gonna care, that wasn't gonna care, gonna care? If, if the number was 200 or 300 higher, will it make anybody who already, will it change anybody's mind? Will it make the, the guy that's on the fence between pro and anti-gun go, I'm going to switch over to anti-gun because they bought back more guns? Will it actually do anything for them? Do these programs actually work? Do they actually do anything? Or like you, are most people trading in guns that are pretty much worth? I've seen a lot of these guns that go in. And most of them are completely useless, worthless pieces of crap. So the, lo the logic again says, get the grant. Now, let's say that you wanted to make a bigger political statement. Well, you could set up a little blogger blog or something like that for free or a dot .wordpress blog and blog about the whole thing and put it out there. And you could take your $1,000 and you could go buy yourself a couple really nice guns, scary-looking ones, tactical-looking ones, Right? And then you could blog and say, I took these 10 pieces of shit to the city of Illinois for their gun buyback program because they were completely useless and to better defend myself from threats of, of criminal activity and things like that and to show my support for the Second Amendment, I went out and supported an American business and bought the following guns. And your political statement would be much bigger than their political statement using their money. So that is the tactician in me speaking. So you've got to balance for yourself. you want to be a logistician, a tactician, or do you want to let the morality, the simple morality internally, uh, make you say, I'm going to stay out of this. It's up to you, but I wouldn't fault you for it. And, and that's how I would look at it. What would I do? I don't know. I don't know. But it also makes me think, Could we do this in mass? Are there a whole bunch of piece of crap sub hundred dollar guns out there that we could pick up? And could like twenty or thirty gun owners go in and make about two grand a piece and go buy a nice AR and a nice sidearm and the accessories to go with them and say thank you to the city of or the state of or the county of for arming your citizens by buying our useless piece of crap guns? That actually seems like something that would need some coordination need to be done over a year. We need to target a specific place to do it 
and uh, I don't know if they would maybe decide, no, you can't do that, or set a limit or something like that, uh, but it would be a very, very interesting way to flip things. And I think that a lot of these political situations like this, we need to start thinking a lot more from the Aikido standpoint rather than you know the, the boxer standpoint and start redirecting their own energy and resources so that we come out ahead uh, and let them, because they have the money, they have the energy, they have the ability to organize this stuff, they have the ability to politicize this stuff, they have the ability to call up the local TV station and say, hey, show up while we, we, we you know cut guns in half or whatever. But what we can do is take all of that energy and redirect it. That's the tactician in me speaking again. So in the end, it's a decision you have to make for yourself, but it would be interesting to see 10 or 20 gun owners Uh, specifically go out and buy, you know, because I've seen, you know, just piece of crap little pistols and stuff like that for $35, $40 bucks, uh, at gun shows uh, quite a bit of the time, little rusted old things and stuff like that, little 25s or whatever, and, and to specifically put them all into a, 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 you know, a box and get ready and go down and do that, and then specifically, like, you know, go out and buy really cool stuff with it that's all firearms related and say that they did it to support the Second Amendment in American businesses, because eventually if enough people did that, you could pretty much shut down the gun buybacks. Just a thought. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Clinton in Cincinnati. I go by Country Roots City Job on the forum. I, uh was wondering if you could ever do a show on what to do if there ever isn't a, a pan pandemic, specifically remembering back to the story of the child in Mexico taking the mask off his face, drinking his Pepsi and, or Coke or whatever, and putting his mask back on, those epic failures. Um, what's the best way to, you know, what kind of stuff do you need if you're going to be going out and about? Do you need these face masks? Do they do good? Do any good? Do you need to wear gloves? I mean, if, if you get gets to that point, I'm thinking stay home, uh, so there's that. I also wanted to share an allergy tip for everybody. Uh, I don't think you suffer from allergies, but for the rest of us who do, something called a neti pot. Uh, it's a pot where you mix in some salt and some hot water, and you run that through your in one nostril and out the other, and it kind of rinses out your sinuses, and uh, kind of like gargling salt, but it does it, does it for your sinuses. So... I'd love to hear what you have to say about all that. Uh, thanks for doing this show. Keep it up. Bye. All right. Here's how, I mean, I've been evaluating this cert for a long time because there, I have two big ones, two that I feel like sooner or later we're going to deal with. Maybe not we as in me and you, but sooner or later in modern, you know, human terms, next century or two, somebody's going to deal with. One I think we'll see uh, inevitably is an economic collapse. I think we'll see multiple collapses and rebuilds, and we need to be prepared for those. But the one that I think, you know, sooner or later, in the next hundred years or so, is inev inevitable, is a truly high lethality, high infection rate pandemic. And the best defense against a pandemic is isolation. There is nothing that is a better defense than that. Being able to be self-sufficient for 90 days is your best bet. Being able to close up the doors, close up the windows, and not go anywhere. And tell work, you know, if you're going to fire me, fire me. I'm better off fired than dead. And in most of those situations, you're going to end up with martial law, and people aren't going to be going to work anyway, and they're going to be finding ways to work remote, and you're going to be able, to, you're going to need to be able to support yourself and defend your home for three months. And the reason I say three months is it might not be that long, but it's highly likely that any pandemic is going to run its course. Uh, the, the majority of its, if it's heavy duty, uh, heavy handed course in about six to eight weeks, and that's less than 90 days. But that's 
typically what the big storm, so to speak, has been in a pandemic. And if we can get through that period and we have some buffer, we should be able to come out the other end okay. The other side of pandemic, and this is something that people don't realize, and it's a horrible, horrible thing to think of, but it's true, so we have to accept the reality of it. The higher lethality uh, there is and the quicker the death there is from a disease and a pandemic, the, the, the least amount of spread it will have. A pandemic that infects somebody that has you know, two or three days before they even show symptoms and another two or three days before they show severe symptoms and another two or three days before they die has a much greater ability to, to spread itself through a population than a pandemic that has a, maybe an infection period of 24 hours and the person's dead within two to three days after they show the first symptoms. Uh, you get less time and you certainly don't want to be one of the first ones to go, but we're better off once we're hunkered down with a pandemic like that. Um, the other thing to understand, and this is this is like very very important to understand about pandemic, is in the type of thing we're talking about, this high of a lethality rate, there will be martial law, and no, you're not going to leave anyway. It's not going to happen. They will lock the cities, the towns, the counties down. Uh, there will be movement for emergency purposes only. At some point, they'll even say you're not going to the hospital. There's no room there anyway. Stay home and deal with it, and try to save yourself. I mean, th this is a fundamental reality, and they, they will use lethal force to impose it, and here's why. It's not because the New World Order wants you all dead with some flu they're going to create for eugenics, okay? Let that crap go, those of you that live that far out in left field. It's because it's the only thing they can do, all right? You can't bomb or shoot a missile at or machine gun a virus. That's why it's so dangerous what the biotech companies are doing, because once it's let loose, there's nothing you can do to it. You have to you have to kind of deal with it and let the course run out and try to mitigate the damages it does. It's like a forest fire. You can't just put a forest fire out. We'd love to be able to have 400 acres in flame and just fly over with one giant super bomber plane and drop a water bomb and put out 400 acres. But you can't put out 400 acres of fire at once. You put in breaks. You put in management structures. You start to contain it, and then you start to control it and let it burn itself out. And a pandemic has to work that way. On the surgical masks, uh, I do believe that they're somewhat effective. The CDC is more inclined to tell you to wear one when you're sick than to keep you from getting sick. Because it's more likely to reduce spread than prevent it. Because the, the virus itself is very, very small. And it's very, very likely to end up on your face or something anyway. So hygiene on top of the mask would be necessary for it to be truly effective. A very, very effective hygiene. Um, here's my view of a mask, though. The biggest thing I see a mask doing for you in that kind of pandemic that's like way worse than the, than the swine flu nonsense that went on, and, but not as bad as what I'm talking about, somewhere in that middle, right? Somewhere and it's like the life's still going on, but, you know, let's say 2% of people that are getting sick are dying and a lot of people are getting sick. You know, something that's, that's more analogous to what happened in the, you know, uh, the 1950s. Uh, maybe a little bit worse than that. Not quite as bad as the 19, 1919 epidemic, somewhere in the middle there. Um, if you are out wearing a mask in that environment, do you know what people are going to think? Oh, they're sick and they'll stay away from you. And that reduces your proximity and connection with other people. So I actually think it has an ability to prevent or to cause a repulsion of people that you would prefer not to speak to. And I think there's some advantage to that as well. I personally do believe that wearing a mask in a really high contaminant environment may help you. And I, I, I think that anybody that thinks it won't just doesn't understand basic physics uh, and basic 
basic pathology that anything being filtered out is better than nothing being filtered out. But the main reason they want people that are sick to wear one is because when they cough or sneeze and the mucus and all, it holds not just the little individual floating virus in, but the spittle and all. So it, it's, 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 it's far better from a standpoint, at least from what the CDC says, at preventing the spread than preventing the infection, if, if that makes sense. So that's their viewpoint on it. We do keep uh, uh, you know, high-grade uh, uh, surgical masks as part of our kits, And uh, it just seems like a very inexpensive thing to do and a very, very simple thing to do. But it's going to be the case that if we ever really deal with it, the only real defense is going to be isolation. And that's, that's just a fundamental reality. And I, it is one of my big fears, but I don't live my life based on it. I just accept the fact that it could happen someday. We're prepared to do it if we have to. And if we have to, we will. Let's take another one. Jack, Brenton, Prince Edward Island. I was mixing some soil up today, and I was wondering if it would be okay to uh, put in dry miracle Grow powder. I've got some uh, normal cheap topsoil, a bucket bag, compost, perlite, or vermiculite, either one. And, uh, and I just thought, is it okay to mix it in dry and the uh, water would leach it out? Or are you going to get the same effect? Uh, thanks for the uh, show, buddy. And uh, I'm really enjoying the last few podcasts about gardening. Talk to you later. Bye. Depends on what you're talking about. If you're talking about the blue stuff, the uh, standard fertilizer, my advice would simply be don't use it at all. Um, it's a uh, commercial fertilizer. I, I don't hate it, but I don't like it. Um, if there's certain spot applications for it or whatever that you want to use, especially with container gardening, oh, it's not that big a deal. Uh, and, and you can use it, but it's not something I would be putting into my soil uh, from a standpoint of my permanent soil. I, I just think it's, it's bad for the beneficial uh, life forms in the soil, and I, I don't want it there. So I would say don't use it at all if you mean the blue stuff that comes in a box, that, the, the powdered blue stuff. If you're going to do it anyway, I would say no, don't mix it in as crystals because one of the problems with the chemical fertilizers, especially like miracle Grow, is that if you were to make, mix some up that was way too concentrated and you pour it onto your plants, it could burn them. And if mixed according to instructions, it won't. And well, this is something my grandfather used on his tomatoes, but we only did it about maybe once a year. And it was you know long before I knew anything about uh, real true organic gardening or anything like that. So, I mean, it's what I grew up with, and it does work. And if you're going to use it, I would mix it with water, and here's why. If you mix it in your soil, it's, it's very probable that you could get a big old lump of it And if that big old lump of it happens to get moist and dissolve, it's kind of stick and cake together, and it comes into contact with a, a main root from one of your plants, it's highly probable it'll burn the shit out of that root and either detrimentally affect or kill the plant. Now, if you're talking about miracle Grow organic fertilizers, and there's three that I use. There's a, a general-purpose, dry-powdered, uh, organic fertilizer that miracle Grow makes. There is a bone, a bone meal and a blood meal both. So there's actually four. And I like both of the, I like all three of those. And I actually like to get all three of them and mix them together. And those are actually designed to be put straight into the soil and spread out and sprinkled around. So if it's that, go nuts with it, right? But the blue stuff I would not mix directly into the soil if I were to choose to use it. And I can see why some people would, and I'm not going to fault you for it. Um, but I just think there's better ways. Now, um, Miracle Grow also makes a liquid feed 
that I really, really like when plants need a nitrogen shot, when they need a big shot of nitrogen in the arm. When I have a plant that's just not looking good, it's yellow, it's lost that deep green, for some reason something has impeded its ability to take up nitrogen. It's either deficient in the soil or maybe the plant's just weakened and it's not able to get the nitrogen that's there. And a lot of times this will happen with transplant shock or transplants that weren't really treated very well. And I will overuse this stuff. It's it's a liquid organic fertilizer from miracle Grow. It's made from fermented beet juice. It's 12 parts nitrogen. And you mix a cap full to a two-gallon uh, watering can. And I will put that on plants that are yellowing and looking like they need nitrogen every other day until that color starts to come around. As soon as that color really starts to green up, I let it go and go back to everything else I'm doing. I have also used this technique. This is a big technique, guys. You're going to love this. A lot of times, especially around now and a few weeks ago, if you go to nurseries, especially privately run nurseries, you'll see a whole bunch of like pepper plants and tomato plants and stuff like that, as long as they're not diseased or severely dried out. But they're kind of really tall, yellowy looking. They're, they're okay, but they don't seem that okay. If you take those home, And the first thing you need to do is give them more space because they're all packed together, and that's why they've grown so tall. So if they're in six-packs or nine-packs, you get some old ones and pull about half of them out of each one and put them so that they're spaced out like one empty cell, one full cell, like a checkerboard. across. So if you had five six-packs, you're going to need ten to do this with the five they came with and five old ones, and put them in there, right? And then put them into a tray and fertilize the crap out of them with a high nitrogen fertilizer, liquid feed, both on the soil and plant drench. And do that for about a week before you transplant them, you'll probably get about 80% of them to survive. Why is that a big deal? Because a lot of times you'll go to a place where a six-pack of pepper plants was $3.50 or $4.50 or $5, and now they're $0.50. Cents. So even if you lose half of them, right, it's still a great time to plant stuff for the fall. The problem is if you just take them in that state and put them in the ground, high heat, high stress environment, worst time of year to put transplants in, and they're like, oh my God, I just finally got out of that thing and now I'm here and they die, right? But if you give them this kind of nitrogen plant therapy, mottled shade, you know, little sun, little shade, harden them off and, and fertilize the hell out of them and get them green before they go in the ground. The other thing is plant them very, very deep. They'll be too tall. Right, So you'll have a pepper plant that's nine inches tall that really, based on how thick it is, should be about six inches tall. So plant it till it's six inches in the ground. And then water the hell out of it and keep fertilizing it after you plant it. And a lot of times, like I said, you can go out and buy you know, 40 pepper plants and you'll end up paying like four bucks right, or five bucks for that many. And if 30 survive out of 40, I mean... You, you, you know what are you what are you looking at for plant then? And a lot of this stuff is good, like I said, to get in the ground now for the fall. So little bonus on that one. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. A big fan of your show. I'm calling with a question regarding rubber mulch and its use around foundational plants and ornamentals. Wanted to see if you had any comments about it. And obviously, it's uh, like a shredded tire type product. And Obviously, it wouldn't provide any benefits for the plants, but uh, just curious as to your thoughts. I was thinking it was a nice, low-maintenance way to mulch around plants that I'm not really looking to get any production or food from. Anyway, I would appreciate your thoughts and comments. Thanks a lot. 
Uh, it's one of those things where I'll say I wouldn't use it, kind of like the last one, but if you did, I wouldn't fault you for it. Its overall effect is going to be completely neutral. Um, I, I don't worry about the fact that it may have come from recycled tires or anything. I think that a tire is much better shredded up and turned into some sort of colored mulch uh, for ornamental plantings in the front of a suburban lot uh, than it is sitting in a landfill or being burned or, or, or many other things that are done with tires that are very, very polluting to the environment. So uh, it, it's as good a use as any other than maybe building an earth ship. And until somebody makes an automated device to pack tires, there won't be that many earth ships. And if you doubt that, fill one tire, pack one tire, and you'll see what I mean. Um, so I wouldn't fault you for it. I would say that you're going to have to make sure that you're adding some level of fertility to that soil because you're doing absolutely nothing to build soil fertility, and you're actually inhibiting uh, any kind of natural buildup of soil fertility because anything that would fall on top of the mulch is then going to blow away or be removed. This is one of my Concerns with the supposed low-maintenance nature of this stuff. If you live in a place with a lot of leaf cover and all, it's kind of a pain in the butt to vacuum, or I mean not vacuum, rake leaves out of there without pulling the mulch out. If you don't have a lot of problems like that, it's about as low-tech or low-maintenance as it gets. So it's something you could do. Uh, I would be much more fond of putting in a natural mulch. Yes, that means maybe once a year you have to go buy a few bags of it unless you have a source of it you can get for free. But it also means that you're building your soil. And while you may be growing rhododendrons and azaleas and stuff like that now, you don't know that at some point in the future you may not want to grow something far more productive and the fertility will then be waiting for you. And from an ornamental standpoint, if you're building your fertility, what you're going to spend in energy and time to bring mulch in once or twice a year, you're probably going to end up spending in some type of fertility that you're going to have to bring in in the form of some sort of fertilizer, whether it's organic or conventional. So I actually think you'll come out ahead with a natural mulch and you'll have a much better um, a, a much better result overall. But if you want to do it, it really isn't going to hurt anything. You're just going to need to address the lack of fertility and keep continuing to build that with some t sort of supplement. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack, it's Paul from South Dakota. Uh, you've always given great advice, and uh, I, I'm looking for some uh, great advice here. Uh, Two-part question. Are, uh, looking to PCS here, soon and in the military. I've got seven years left um, until I can retire. That'll actually put me at about 22. Uh, at my next base, I'd like to buy a home because it is a good time to buy. But not sure if that's where I see myself when I retire. So my question is, Uh, what is your advice to the military home buyer uh, it, under the current climate? Uh, my second question is, as far as investing, I'm sure you're familiar with the thrift savings plan. I currently give 5%. I was going to turn that, you know, tone that down to about 1% or, or nothing and just, you know, use my money elsewhere uh, on debts and things like that. Any advice would be appreciated. Uh, you've always done a great job uh, answering questions of this nature. Thanks. Well, first, thank you for your service, and you're in a very unique position right now to plan your future in a way that very few people your age probably are. And this is what I mean. You're seven years away 
from a guaranteed income that you can calculate. And that income will be guaranteed for as long as it's business as usual in the United States and even probably past that. It will be one of the last things that's ever cut out as an austerity measure is retirement payments to retired military personnel. The total number of retired military personnel pales in comparison to the total number of retired personnel that are uh, on Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid and is a, 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 a mouse fart. Uh, of a rounding error in total cost to the government or even total cost to the Department of Defense. Uh, Department of Defense would be able to easier, easier uh, give up uh, one aircraft carrier or a couple bombers than it would to uh, cut, some, cut, cut the retirement or eliminate the retirement of our retired military personnel. They may change it. They've rattled sabers about doing it, and that will affect, if they do, it will affect people that are new. They will never get this done to people that have been in the military, especially for more than 10 years. Uh, so if that change ever does happen, and it was going to happen, and they got pulled back, that type of thing, it will affect new people. So you're going to have this locked pension, so to speak. Um, you, you, you have a pay grade you have now. And it is reasonable to assume that you will probably advance at least one more pay grade. But even if you locked it right now and said, I'm just going to retire as what I am, you're able to calculate your retirement based on the formula. So you know what your income is going to be. So that allows you to go in and if you, if you really like your duty station and you like the area, to buy something relatively close to that. And you don't have to buy something like, you know, just off post. You can buy something, uh, I would say up to an hour away. And you can really take your time. You don't have an immediate housing need. You have the military to take care of that for you. Uh, if you're an officer at this point, or even if you're an NCO at this point, you probably have some quarters allowance that's available to you as well to help defray the cost. So it makes a lot of sense. You're also going to sail through the mortgage process uh, very, very quickly, very, very easily. So I think that that is something that you 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 know makes this uh, a lot more doable. Now, if they're sending you to New Jersey. I don't know if Fort Dix even exists anymore, but let's say they're sending you to New Jersey, and you hate New Jersey, don't do it. But if they're sending you somewhere that you can actually see yourself living contently uh, after you get out of the military, now you have a house. You have a house that has six years, maybe, because let's say it's going to be seven years, after, you, but you're going to move and you're going to have to find a house. Let's say six years of a 30-year mortgage paid for at minimum. Uh, I think it makes a lot of sense. As for cutting your retirement savings at this point and using the additional monies to pay on debt or save up cash, I like the idea as long as that's what you do with it. As long, Because here, here's the reality. That's additional retirement savings. You have a military pension for the rest of your life. It's probably bigger than most people's Social Security checks. Right? So how much do you really need to be saving for that portion of your retirement right now when you have this much of your life ahead of you and you have this major transition that's going to occur? If you weren't thinking this way, I'd say just keep shoving the money in there, man, if you don't know what you're going to do with it. But the thought of being able for you seven years from now to leave the military, have your pension, have no debt except with the house, and you should be able to do that under the plan that you have unless you have some monumental amount of debt, and then you need to start figuring out how to pay more, not less of the debt. Uh, and, uh, and walking away from the military with the house and the pension from your military better damn well be able to pay your mortgage and your electric bill at minimum. Okay, If you can do that, then you can take, you can take a job greeting people at Walmart and live pretty comfortably. 
Right? I'm not saying you should go do that at that point. I'm just saying you could, and that gives you a lot of freedom and options. And it's very possible right now that if you buy smart and do things the right way, that you can buy a house where your military pension would pay all of your your living expenses, period. You could pay the the, the, the mortgage, the taxes, the insurance, uh, the electric bill, uh, all of the utilities if you do it right. You also have seven years to work on developing that into kind of a self-sufficient homestead and pay down the mortgage at a higher accelerate rate. Because the, the fact of the matter is, other than whatever debt you've rung up, uh, if you're, if you're, especially if you're single, you don't really have any expenses in the military. Uh, your food is provided for you. Your medical care is provided for you. This is a time to kind of go into overdrive. You're probably making a much better wage than you were uh, as a young soldier or airman or marine or whatever it is that you are. You have a reasonably good income. You have very low expense ratio. At least you can if you choose to. And you need to be looking at the next 25, 30 years of your life and seeing the seven-year period is setting it up. And I would definitely consider doing what you're talking about, buying a house, a place that you, you will love. Uh, maybe it needs some work and all, but you have the time to do it now. And there's some real good opportunities out there. So above anybody, I'd say that you need to be considering this. Again, unless they're moving you to a duty station where you really don't want to live. And then you need to look at more along the lines of, let's, let's figure out what I would be paying uh, for a, a place and stockpiling some money. I don't think that right now I would look at holding a property six to seven years on a flip plan. Uh, it could work out, and just as well might not work out. So I would make my, if you're going somewhere you don't want to go, I would begin to stockpile war chest money. And uh, I would uh, I would get my living expenses to the bone if I could. Now, if you have a family, that changes the dynamic a lot. But those are my thoughts. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, uh, Mike Collin from out in Ventura County, California. Um, just uh, five months ago, I purchased an acre of land, so uh, getting uh, property all set up, uh, getting uh, some great tips from your podcast, uh, MSP member. And um, chickens are uh, four months old. I have a dozen, uh, one rooster, 11 hens. And a question regarding the eggs, um, my wife has uh, no problem eating, um, you know, the eggs, but uh, she's a little concerned about the uh, rooster fertilizing the eggs. And uh, from what I've studied so far, I guess as long as you pick them up every day, you really shouldn't have a problem. But um, just uh, hadn't heard you talk about it, and I haven't read about it yet. So um, I was wondering uh, your opinion about that, um, whether makes them taste different or um, whether I should keep the rooster separate or uh, what have you. So any, anyway, uh, I really enjoy the show. been listening for a long time and uh, I'm an MSB member and all that. So uh, really enjoy the show. Talk to you later. Bye. Yeah, it's, it's just not an issue. It's just nothing to worry about. If you let the eggs go out a little longer than they should, you might crack the egg open one day and see a little red dot in the middle of your yolk. That's a baby chicken starting to form. If you cook that up and eat it, you will never know. Uh, I've seen it happen plenty of times. If you let it go a little bit longer, you have a little embryo in there, a little chicken, and, and you probably could eat it. In some places, it's actually considered a delicacy, um, but you may not want to, and you may notice the difference at that point. Um, but from the day-to-day -day use, it's just not a big deal. And if you should 
crack an egg and it's a little bit more developed and you're comfortable with, feed that one to the dogs and go on about your life and don't worry about it. It's just not a big deal. Um, I mean, that's, that's how simple that one is. Uh, I definitely wouldn't separate the rooster from your flock. Um, he's your defender of your flock. Generally, I've noticed a lot of times when people have small flocks of hens with no roosters, one of the hens will become very, very non-productive as a layer, and she will take on a dominant role and try to fill in the role of rooster as best she can because there needs to be that hierarchy in the pack. So I think if you can have a rooster, they're very beneficial to a flock, and they keep your hens more productive. And if you ever want to actually produce uh, another generation of chickens, you, you, you kind of need a rooster to do that. So I don't think you have an issue, and I just wouldn't worry about it in any way, shape, or form. And like I said, if you do have, a, for some reason, an egg that goes a little bit too long, and when you do crack it open, it has some development that you don't like, feed it to the dog. He won't care. Let's take another call. Jack, uh, Neil Aldor Fury on the forum. Um, I had a question about permaculture. I kind of started late after I went ahead and, and bought my land and put my chicken coop out and, you know, kind of did some design work. And now I've really started to get into it. And I've kind of messed up my zones a little bit. And I, I know that's not a huge deal, but I just bought um, Bill Molson's Introduction to Permaculture. And so I'm really getting a, a good understanding of what a zone is and how to manage that. So my question to you is, when you've gone through and, and kind of not put the center of your, your traffic um, uh, in, in, in outside of the way, I guess is a good, good thing to say. Like my chicken coop is, like I said, in Zone 3. So how do I, uh, how do I fix that, or how, do, how can I design that to where it flows better? Uh, thank you. Well, as it usually uh, is with most things in permaculture, is it sort of depends. Let's say you're uh, managing a quarter acre or a half acre suburban lot. It's not really that big a deal. And one thing we need to understand about, understand about zones in permaculture is they're very, very flexible, and we often draw them as squares or circles or very, very geometric proportional areas, and that's not how they work. They're very, very bendy and curvy and flexible. And so let's say we have a, a, a lot uh, that we're, we're managing in a, in a typical, even if it's not suburban, even if it's rural, it's a small lot. It's, a, it's under an acre. Maybe it's under half of an acre. And we have to walk, you know, fairly far distance to the chicken house because that's where we put the chicken house before we understood zones. And we wanted it kind of that far out for maybe some other reasons, like not having them too close to the house or whatever for whatever reason. And then we learn about permaculture and this concept of zone-based design and things that I touch every day should go into zone one and be closest to the house and follow pathways to all of these other areas should all be zone one. Because anything I need to touch daily or every other day needs to be someplace that I was probably going to be anyway. So then we say, well, what we did is we put the chicken coop quite a bit far away because I got to go out there every day and feed them. I got to let them out. I got to put them back in. Uh, I got to pick up the eggs. And, you know, it's a daily chore to, to deal with your chickens. We can automate some of it, but pretty much people deal with their chickens on a daily basis. So it would ideally be a zone one thing or on a border between zone one and zone two. But now we've set it way out there. So what do we do? In permaculture, we follow principles. So the problem is the solution. And unless we're careful, like, like Lawton said, we can turn the solution into the problem. So how do we turn the problem into a solution? Well, what we do is we basically create our zone one with a big old peninsula in it. 
And we create a pathway. If we're going to walk to that coop every day, we're probably going to walk down a very specific route to that path. And that entire route becomes this big peninsula of Zone 1 kind of jutting out into Zone 2 and maybe even into Zone 3. And along that pathway, we do things on both sides that are maybe intensive planning. So maybe we run an irrigation line on both sides, a drip irrigation line on both sides of that pathway. We plant our herbs and a lot of kitchen vegetables and maybe some perennials like strawberries and things that we would want to go out and pick every day when they're in season right along that pathway. And what that allows us to do is either walk out there with a bag or a little cart go all the way down to our chickens, take care of their things, pick up the eggs, and either on the way to the chickens, which is actually a great idea, or on the way back, pick and take care of all the little bit of maintenance that we have. Because here's what will inevitably happen. These areas are going to be the ones that need the most maintenance. So they're going to have the most things that we would call weeds. So as we go out with our little bag or cart to our chickens for the day, as we're walking along, there's a weed. Pluck into the cart. There's a weed. Pluck into the cart. There's a weed. Pluck into the cart. Right? There's a seed head. I don't really need that one, whatever it is, whether it's amaranth or whatever. I need some of it for me, but cut that off, and, all, and then by the time I get to my chickens, I've done a little bit of foraging for them, and I drop it off with them. On my way back, maybe I pick up some, you know, I've got my eggs, and maybe I cut some chives and, and some, uh, some basil, and uh, that, that's going into my omelet that I'm going to make with the eggs that I just picked up. So now the problem's a solution. Instead of worrying about the fact that it's over in this area, and I would have preferred it to be over here, I've just made Zone 1 this long, curvy path down there. And, you know, if I'm dealing with a quarter acre, for, for God's sakes, it's not that big a deal now, is it? Right, And then maybe my wood pile's over in a zone two that's even closer, but I don't go there every day. So whatever kind of pathways are in between there need to be a hardier, more perennial, less management-intensive, rougher mulch thing. Right, so that's, that's one way we could do it. And the reason we can really do it that way is if I was managing five acres, my zone one would probably be about a quarter of an acre anyway. So the only reason I'm chopping up that little quarter acre is because it's just a management principle. So I can create this long, again, jutting peninsula. And this is, this is amusing because I have a drawing of a, of a three-zone system for a suburban lot. It's my next video in the permaculture series. And I'm going to use this when I record that video. So look for that to come out today or tomorrow for you uh, and maybe make this even a little bit more evident. And, guys, I'm doing a great permaculture series. I think I have 12 videos in it now uh, with whiteboard designs and things like that. So check that out on the YouTube channel. Now, let's take this another route. Let's say that you have two or three acres or more, and you've put the chickens really far out. Then I would look at moving the coop in. I would look at redoing things, and it's probably worth moving. But if you've built a permanent or semi-permanent structure in, in a classic you know, lot size environment, there's nothing there that's that big of a trip anyway, so just design the pathway as zone one. And that doesn't mean you don't have a zone one wrapped right around your house either. That just means that zone one kind of wraps around the house and maybe takes a little jog here and there, and then it just follows that pathway. And it's actually a really creative way to do things, and it often will solve a problem for you, which is there's certain things I need to do every day, but I don't really want those objects close to the house. So I might also have kind of a zone two encroaching onto that peninsula, and that might be where my worm bins or my composting is. So as I'm taking, as I'm going out in the morning to see the chickens and let them out and, and pick up the eggs, I'm not only picking up stuff to bring back to the house, I'm not only picking up stuff to give to the chickens, I'm also maybe dropping off the compostables that aren't going to the chickens. Maybe some of them are, some of them aren't. Uh, it, it all depends on, on how much waste I'm producing and how much the chickens want. And certain things, you know, chickens 
chickens aren't real fond of onions. So if I've just you know done some onions with my cooking, and I have the, the the top of the onions that aren't really good as a bunching onion or a green onion, and I'm getting rid of those, those are going to be much more of a compostable. My worms nor my chickens want those. So it's all about being fluid and flexible with this. But again, if you put your chicken farm, 150 or chicken house, 150 yards away, I would look at moving it. But in a, in a smaller yard, I would just look at adapting to the solution. All right, with that, I think we've got everything wrapped up today. It's been a great show, really varied topics. Hope you guys have enjoyed it, and uh, I will catch you again tomorrow. We'll have an interview for you tomorrow with a great guest. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.